Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Evolution Medicine Podcast. I am your host, Joe Alcock, but instead of having our typical programming, I'm going to bring you a special treat today. This will be an episode of the brand new podcast, Zombified. Athena Actippus is a friend and a research collaborator of mine. She is a psychology professor at the Arizona State University. She's the director of ASU's Interdisciplinary Cooperation Initiative, and she's the chair of the Zombie Apocalypse Medical Alliance. I should mention that this that ZAMA, the Zombie Apocalypse Medicine Alliance, is a project that we kind of came up with a few years ago. It was a means of kind of breaking through pop culture and science and a way to bring interesting science to the general audience. Carlo Maley, Athena Actippus, and I had a plan to start a conference. We termed this the Zombie Apocalypse Medical Meeting, and we had our inaugural meeting in October of 2018. The next one is going to be in 2020. Uh, This podcast, Athena gets all the credit. This is her zombie baby and I really recommend you check it out. So go to your podcast subscription service, download it, give it a review, and also give my podcast, Evolution Medicine, a review also, and heck, give it five stars while you're at it. So with that, I'm going to let you enjoy this episode of Zombified. Have you been zombified by microbes and the microbiome? Welcome to the Zombified Podcast, your source for fresh brains. Zombified is a production of ASU and the Zombie Apocalypse Medicine Alliance. I'm your host, Athena Actippus, psychology professor at ASU and chair of the Zombie Apocalypse Medicine Alliance. And I'm your co-host, Dave lundberg Kenrick, media outreach program manager at ASU and brain enthusiast. Brains. Yep, and microbes, right? Yeah, well, and microbes and brains together. So they're microbes in our brains? Actually, there probably are. Um, For a long time, people thought that our brains were sterile, but it does not actually look like that's the case anymore. But are we talking about the microbes in where? Well, it depends what you mean by brains also, because we have so many nerves in our guts that microbes can actually, you know, interact with. They can, like, send signals that get picked up by all of these nerves that, um, like, innervate all of our guts. Interesting. So, yeah. so tell me about who we're hearing from today. Well, we're talking to Joe Alcock, who has been thinking about microbes and behavior and to what extent do microbes manipulate us. For a long time, actually, and uh, we, Joe and I, worked together on this this question about to what extent might microbes be manipulating our behavior, and in particular, making us eat things that feed them. Oh, yeah, interesting. Yeah, so we have a a fun conversation about that, and he also just knows so much about all these different strategies that microbes can use to manipulate their hosts in order to help the microbes propagate themselves. Cool. Some really creepy things. So is this good for us or bad for us? You'll have to listen and see. All right. <laughs> All right. Good. Let's hear from Joe. I know it's crazy, but it seems so logical. Try to fight it, but it's something psychological with you. Makes me act the way I do. 
Apocalypse. <laughs> Welcome, Joe Alcock, to the Apocalypse. <laughs> have, have Thank you, you Dina. <laughs> so I'm glad to be here in the Apocalypse. It's amazing to have you joining me for today's Apocalypse. Um, Joe, can you start by telling us a little bit about yourself, who you are, maybe why you're here, like in general? In, in the Apocalypse or here, pre-Apocalypse or post? Why you exist and what you do. <clears throat> what I do? Thing. Yeah. You know who I am. I know, I know, okay. but but not everybody who's listening knows you as well as I do. Okay. We're going to edit that part out. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> so, Joe, you, you study a lot of things. I do. And you also help people because yeah. you're a real doctor, not so, like us kind of PhDs. So my background is in emergency medicine. I am a clinician. A couple days ago, I worked a busy shift in the hospital at the University of New Mexico, which is a tertiary care hospital, urban, busy ER, where we get patients flown in from all over the state with all manner of problems, including gunshot wounds and trauma and all sorts of nonsense that we do. But that's only part of my life. That's the apocalypse part. That's the apocalypse part, exactly. <laughs> Before I went to medical school, I was going to become a behavioral ecologist. I was super interested in evolutionary biology, and I had no plan really to go to medical school. But when I was in graduate school at Cornell, um, studying to become a you know, PhD behavioral ecologist, I heard a talk about microbes and evolution. And this is a talk by Paul Ewald, and that kind of convinced me to switch gears and, and go into medicine. But I've carried that with me. So what was the talk about exactly? And the talk was about diarrhea. <laughs> yeah, it was, a, it was it was a diarrhea <laughs> talk that changed my whole life course. <laughs> kind of amazing, huh? But looking back on it, it was about gut microbes. Uh -huh. And that's that's what I remain interested in now. But yeah, so Paul Eobald said, in effect, that he was talking about cholera and dysentery and why it is that microbes evolve to be as virulent and harmful to you as they do. They don't always evolve to be, you know, helpful little cooperative mutualists, which was the one of the prevailing ideas before that. And he laid it out all in what I thought was a really clever way. There was, there was a lot to it. But the bottom line was applying evolutionary and ecological precepts to infectious disease and things like diarrhea and human illness and health was a really fantastic approach. So one that I wanted to do. So what was the, um, like in a nutshell, what he was saying about when they evolved to be virulent versus when they evolved to be not virulent. So he apparently, he was, he was telling us about an anecdote of travel in South America someplace where he was just on the toilet all day. Oh no. Yeah. So he had like, he had salmonella or some kind of, some kind of dysentery. And it occurred to him that it wasn't possible that pathogens would always evolve towards a benign and helpful state. Um, that they could, you know, <laughs> that certainly pathogens have, have in their best interest, 
uh, making you very, very, very sick. But, but really, the, the predominant idea before that, the idea was that pathogens over evolutionary time would evolve to become mutualists, that, that cooperation was the natural order of things, and that over time, uh, a, any kind of a dyad, dyadic relationship between a host and a pathogen would evolve towards commensalism. Hmm, but, but it's not the case. So when, when does it evolve to be symbiotic and commensal and helpful? And when does it evolve to be exploitative? So we can talk first about when it evolves to be exploitative. Um, so one of the ecological ideas that Paul Ewald talked about was that if you are a pathogen that's transmitted by a vector, so for instance, like a malaria being transmitted by a parasite, that's a great example of when uh, pathogens don't have your best interests at heart. Um, and it, it, you could be totally debilitated, laid up with malaria, unable to move. And in fact, that benefits the malaria par parasite. Falcipora malaria gets taken up by mosquitoes way better when you're unable to swat the mosquitoes away, mm -hmm. when you're just lying in bed. Mm -hmm. Other diseases require face-to-face -face contact. So things like upper respiratory tract infections or influenza, they mm -hmm. require you to be awake, up, Adam, interacting with other people, kind of maintaining your social calendar, at least to some extent. Mm -hmm. And that is how they get transmitted. Mm. So the microbes that don't really care if we're, or in fact, would rather sort of have us be laid up and get transmitted by vectors are going to evolve to be more virulent, virulent while the ones that need us to be moving around and interacting with other people to get transmitted or all else equal going to evolve to be less virulent? Uh, that's right. Or at least that would help shape the direction okay. of the virulence in that direction. Mm -hmm. So that's part of it. But getting back to the, the diarrhea thing, the idea is that some pathogens don't require you to be alive at all. They can survive just fine in the environment and then infect somebody else and you can be long dead. So cholera is a good example of this. Hmm. So the cholera, you know, Vibrio cholera, the responsible agent of the disease cholera, you when you poop and it causes voluminous, massive amounts of diarrhea, it's called rice water diarrhea, that can make you become so dehydrated that you die. In fact, that's how a lot of people do die of cholera. Hmm. But a lot of that poop ends up in waterways. And in places that don't have enough sanitation, those spores can live in water that is then consumed by people and animals weeks to months later. The spores are really hardy and they do, they mm. do great. Mm. So in other words, the cholera organism doesn't require you to be alive to be tran transmitted, unlike influenza, where you have to be at least alive and coughing on somebody, right? So this is kind of a zombie thing, actually, right? It's like if the parasite kills you, but then they're like, they've managed to hijack and capitalize on your bodily fluids enough that they can then use them to continue to infect after you die. That, there's that's some sort of weird Cholera is something. definitely an undead, actually, or a dead, apocalyptic <laughs> sort of disease. Yeah. Yeah. And it relies on the breakdown of society and hmm. uh, the fact that it can sort of lay in wait and then attack you and infect you weeks later. Mm -hmm. That's kind of a scary thing. Yeah. So this whole idea of like that that people might be dead but they could still 
be vectors for transmitting disease. I mean, maybe some of the whole zombie idea, right? That you're like dead, but you're undead and you're still a vector. Maybe that somehow comes from this notion that sometimes people who are dead are still vectors of disease. I don't know. I'm totally wildly speculating now, but yeah, no, I like the idea. Definitely yeah. has some zombie implications. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you're talking about how All you right. got to studying medicine and yeah. I kind of derailed you with the poly thing to ex- explain the, the basics, but uh, do you want to so, take us a little further? So, but that was the moment. Journey? That was the moment where okay. I thought, I mean, I had a couple of ideas that were, that were just wrong. One is that I thought that in evolutionary biology, most of the major questions had been answered. And so I really thought that this application of evolution to humans was novel and new and cool and exciting. I still think that's true. But of course, my original thought that all the big ideas had been answered in evolutionary biology, that I, that was totally off base. So, so why, did, why did you think that, that all the big questions had been answered? It's a good question, but I was looking back on some of the major advances in, in the field and a lot really evolution laid evolution and the idea that evolution explains behavior. The groundwork was put in place by people in the 50s, 60s and 70s. Like your dad. Sorry. Like my dad and, and others. And <laughs> yeah. maybe I was thinking that a lot of the big stuff had really been fleshed out and we understood a lot of what explained animal behavior, human mm-hmm. behavior, and that sort of thing. But if, but again, this was the naivete of a 20-year-old. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. You didn't realize that your dad didn't answer all of the questions. Oh, yeah, or even scratch the surface. But anytime yeah. anybody, any scientific field, thinks that the big questions have been answered, they're almost always wrong. Right. Right? Yeah. So I you know in the benefit of hindsight, I know that I was wrong. But at the time, I thought, I need to kind of focus my attention on this new shiny object, which is evolutionary medicine. Mm-hmm. So I decided to go to med school. Mm-hmm. I went to UCLA. I did some work with Jared Diamond, who has absolutely has an evolutionary point of view. Yeah. And interestingly, again, in retrospect, he was interested in gut kinds of behaviors and gut transporters. Hmm. But I thought that that was too esoteric and not evolutionary enough for me. And so I kind of put that aside and I focused my efforts on different stuff in medical school. But I wrapped up med school at UCLA, went to UNM for for residency, and then afterwards started all the things you have to do to be a functional emergency physician, which takes a lot of work and get board certified and, and that kind of thing. And it was a few years later before I kind of circled back to evolutionary medicine. And now you teach evolutionary medicine. Yeah, so I've taught evolutionary medicine for over a decade to undergraduates, grad students, medical students. I started a rotation in evolutionary medicine at the University of New Mexico. And I like teaching at other places too. So this week, for instance, I'm teaching Mayo medical students in combination with Arizona State University's Center for Evolution and Medicine. Awesome. Yeah, fun stuff. Yeah. So... Now you're a ER physician and you teach evolutionary medicine and you do research on microbiome yeah. and other issues. And so this is medicine. typical, I think, for a lot of academic clinicians that there's a clinical part of my job, there's an education part of my job, and there's a research part of my job. So the research part is I'm super interested in the microbiome. And I'm also the thing that really motivates me 
is I want to know how the microbiome plays a role in disease and how <laughs> I want to know how in particular microbes can hijack our bodies, our physiology and make us sick, make us do things we don't want to do and possibly affect our behaviors. Yeah. The zombie right? apocalypse. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So can we talk about microbes and behavior a little bit and what microbes can do and can't do? So, so there's echoes of Paul Ewald here. Yeah. Back in the day, he was reacting to a conventional wisdom that pathogens would evolve towards becoming mutualists. And the same is true for the microbiome, that there's lots and lots of really high profile researchers out there. And they think that the microbiome basically behaves as a mutualistic organ and is as integral to your body and your body functioning as other organs in your body, like your heart, your brain, your liver, you know, whatever. But of course the microbiome doesn't behave that way. So we, the two of us, we've written with Carlo Maley about how there are genetic conflicts of interest within the microbiome. And there's all these competing genomes in our microbiome. And that is what we'd expect as an outcome of evolution. And in fact, that's what we really observe when we look carefully. The microbiome is not a mutualistic organ. It does all sorts of things and it can, it can go wrong. It can go badly off the rails and actually hurt you in really important ways. Right. So it's sometimes has aligned interests with us as an organism. Sometimes it doesn't. Right. That's sometimes right. it's a it's more of a zero sum game over the resources and yeah. other times it's a non zero sum game. And so just because we are habitat for our microbiomes doesn't mean that our microbiomes are dependent on us for their fitness, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. They can sometimes profit when we get sick and even if we die. And that's the same. The same is true for cholera. So cholera can be busy infecting other people long after we're dead. And our microbiome has many opportunities for horizontal transmission, which we haven't talked about much, mm -hmm. but transmission to other people, um, even if we're sick and even if they're hurting us. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, part of the, the backstory on all of this is that you and I started talking about these things yeah. a long time ago. Yeah. We were at a conference. Yeah. We were sitting on the deck. Yeah. Discussing some of these ideas. And, and you asked me something about Hey, do you think it's possible that microbes might hijack our brains yeah and make us eat things that we don't want to eat yeah and i said of course they do that <laughs> and then we're like let's work on this paper together yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah and i mean really it's that conversation that was the nidus for the zombie apocalypse medicine meeting that we put together last fall which was the reason that this podcast even exists. So Joe, this podcast wouldn't exist without you, really. This would not have happened. So it's really awesome to Head have exploding. you <laughs> here so we can talk all right. about all this. Um but yeah and, and so we have been chatting about I wish this just, I wish time. I could take as much credit as you're uh suggesting, but of course that's not true. <laughs> now the paper did have a zombie element to it. Definitely the, the one that we wrote. Yeah. And the paper that we're talking about is, is eating behavior manipulated by the gastrointestinal microbiota? 
I think that's what it's called. Yeah. In bioessays. In bioessays. Yeah. Look it up. Right. So neuronal and brain hijacking by, by microbes. Yeah. So we went deep into this idea of the gut-brain access. Yeah. That concept that gut microbes influence our nervous systems. Right. And the idea is kind of simple, right? If you just take the basic premise that microbes need to consume resources and they, the microbes that live in our GI tract rely on us to provide them with those resources, then if they can do anything to make us eat those things that preferentially feed them rather than their competitors, then they're going to have higher fitness than the ones that don't do that, right? Right. Now, the basic argument was that microbes in our guts, they're competing not just with us for food and energy, they're competing with each other. And certain microbes do better if they get certain nutrients and certain foods. You know, some are better at digesting proteins by proteolytic proteolytic metabolism. Some microbes are better at digesting (laughs) proteins via proteolytic pathways. Other microbes are better at digesting complex carbohydrates like in in fiber. And so it makes sense that if you're going to give benefits to some populations of microbes that are in your guts, that you can do that by what you eat. I think we should come up with some sort of a tongue twister involving populations of protein eating proteolytic probiotic something but we should we should come up with some tongue twisters yeah yeah so we hypothesized (laughs) moving right along yes (laughs) that if a microbe could influence satiety or hunger or even make you crave certain foods or your idea was they could make you unhappy or yeah. have you un- undergo well, visceral pain? Isn't it much easier to yeah. make an organism unhappy than make them happy? Like in general, the, the mechanisms for making you feel uncomfortable or feel pain or feel bad, like much easier. Are you speaking from personal experience? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the idea is that from a gut microbes perspective, if they could make you hangry, you know, angry and hungry, yeah. that that would prompt you perhaps to eat right. certain things. Or they just release some virulence factors and you don't feel so good, right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, they've got the genes for that already. So here's the amazing thing, people. So we wrote this paper a few years ago and still the jury's out on part of this. We don't know, we don't know the whole story yet. And we don't know if certain microbes actually make us crave certain foods. But a lot of the story has been fleshed out. Absolutely, microbes make appetite hormones. Absolutely, they produce substances that regulate our satiety and hunger. They do this, and this is really well described. And there's a whole bunch of behaviors now where the microbes are deeply involved. Yeah, and they also tap into our reward systems, right? They're producing dopamine and serotonin analogs and stuff, so. They do all these things. Yeah, yeah. And then they're signaling the vagus nerve, right, directly Mm -hmm. to the brain. So so we have this nerve superhighway between our guts and our brains, and that's called the vagus nerve. So if we want to understand why it is that a neurotransmitter that's made by a microbe in the gut, how it might possibly affect the brain, the vagus nerve is part of the answer to that. Yeah. But this this, uh, pain idea, this this hangry kind of idea Mm -hmm. about how gut microbes might make us feel bad and thereby could make us do things that they want us to do. Again, we're speaking in shorthand here. Right. The as if Mm -hmm. intentionality that uh, 
we often use as evolutionary biologists to just mm-hmm. speak about how something's going to evolve to look like it's intentional. Yeah. Yes. We know we know now that like with nociception, that's pain sensations and pain processing. The gut microbiota is actually super deeply involved in that. Yeah. So you can take away the gut microbiota. You can do this in germ-free mice and germ-free mice feel a whole lot less pain just in general. Wow. So even the capacity to feel pain seems like it's dependent on having a gut microbiota. One of the examples we used in our paper that I think we cut from the final version um, had to do with opioid production. Mm-hmm. And this, we used the example of the worm Dracunculus. Dracunculus mm-hmm. is the worm that is uh, emerges from someone's foot. And this happens in <laughs> equatorial Africa, yeah. in places where, where people take up the parasite by drinking infected water that has this copepod in it. Yeah, parasites are gross. Yeah, and the parasite grows <laughs> into, ends up getting the lymphatics of the leg. What's amazing about this super long worm, and it can be like a couple feet long, is that it lives in your body and it secretes morphine or something that looks like morphine. It activates opioid receptors in your body. It manipulates you so you can't feel this worm in your, in your leg until it wants you to feel pain. That sounds like a really bad marriage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so next thing you know, your foot's on fire. <laughs> God. And the little worm is burrowing its way through your skin. So it stops producing the morphine. It produces other substances that cause absolutely ridiculous amounts of pain. And your foot's on fire. And so what do you do when your foot's on fire? You, you plunge it in water, it in water right? Yeah. And that's exactly what, it, what the worm, again, we're speaking in shorthand here, wants you to do. It's evolved to manipulate the behavior of its host in a way that that promotes its reproduction and fitness. So the infected person puts their foot in the water, the worm burrows out, lays a bunch of eggs, and then goes up, goes around its, its merry way. So as an aside, the Dracunculus worm is the one that is, we think, responsible for that snake on a staff symbol, which is the, the universal medical symbol. Really? That's one of the ideas behind it. Who knows if that's true or not, but physicians or you know healthcare workers or healers in some of these communities would very carefully try to wind up this parasite onto a stick. And it would be this weeks long process to, to pull it all the way out of the body. What? If you mess up and you break the worm, then it causes massive inflammation and infection and you can lose your leg. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So it's, it's kind of like a, not quite a bomb, but sort of like if you don't, like if you set it off, then. Yeah. Well, you have to do it just right. Hmm. And that takes some skill. Wow. And patience. Wow. And it's miserable for the people undergoing this. Yeah. What's remarkable is that this bug, this parasite, this worm is likely to go extinct. There's some pretty effective and easy public health measures being put in place in some of these countries. All you have to do to avoid getting infected is you have to avoid drinking the copepod, which is like this little tiny miniature crustacean in freshwater sources. So you have to drink filtered water and they give people a little straw with a filter on it. So they're very close to making this organism extinct. It only infects people. Hmm. It's a parasite which has evolved just to parasitize human beings, which is also kind of amazing. Yeah. It has no other natural vector or reservoir in other organisms. Are there a lot of parasites that just affect 
one species or is that a really unusual thing in general? Well, I think this particular one's unusual. I'm not aware of other worms, mm. but they must exist. There must be some relatives that of, of this that infect other organisms. Yes. But this one's super specialized mm -hmm. to deal with people. Right. Yeah, I mean, sometimes don't you have parasites where there'll be sort of subspecies that then specialize on, you know, certain other species, but... Well, influenza is kind of the poster child for an infection that's really good at switching hosts. That's why we have swine flu and avian flu, and we worry about, you know, ducks and geese flying in with influenza. It can really do a, a good job of infecting different kinds of organisms. But on the other hand, there's a reason why you're not going to get kennel cough from your dog and your dog is probably not going to get ear cold. Um, a lot of other kinds of infections are, are much more specialized on their host. Mm -hmm. So for us as humans, these you know, parasites and microbes that can affect our behavior, what are your feelings or thoughts about, is this a problem for us like in terms of our autonomy are they, you know, is there a philosophical problem here? Of course like, there is. And people, even without considering microbes that are hijacking your brain, people argue about whether we have free will. And some people, some, some good people, think that, <laughs> <laughs> in fact, we don't really have free will. That if you can go, if we could actually get a, an accurate picture of your internal mental state, that we could predict with some certainty what you're about to do in, in the future and that we're really just autom automatons. I'm not sure if I believe that. Mm -hmm. I like to think, as most people do, that we have some agency in the world and we know what we're doing at least some of the time. Mm -hmm. But this, these data kind of challenge that. When we know that, when we look at germ-free animals versus not and we extrapolate from some of these results in other organisms, it looks like your internal mental state, your mood, your some of your behaviors, whether you're eating or not, whether you're hungry, whether you're sleepy, whether you're who knows what. Anxious. Anxious. Yeah. Feeling social. Feeling social. All these things. Everything that, that Athena just mentioned, we know are affected by microbes. So to look at the data briefly, you make germ-free animals and they become relatively antisocial or asocial. They don't like to hang around with their litter mates and or socialize with other conspecifics, other mice. Mm -hmm. Germ-free mice uh, also exhibit, they can exhibit some anxiety behaviors. And it turns out that if you transplant microbes from an anxious mouse into a germ-free mouse, you can make the mouse even more depressed and anxious. And if you transplant microbes from a confident, robust, non-depressed mouse, you can make the mouse confident and brave. All these things have been shown. So if that's true, if our internal state is really dependent on microbes that we're interacting with, maybe we don't have free will. Hmm. Okay, so if we can wildly speculate for a minute here. No way. <laughs> we never do that. We never do that. Um, if microbes are indeed having these substantial effects on our mood, our feelings of well-being, our... Um, anxiety, depression, sociality, etc. And we know in animal models that you can transfer microbes and then that actually changes the 
behavior mm-hmm. or the outcome in the expected way. We're no longer in control, people. <laughs> well, and what is happening with human social contact? Are we transmitting microbes that could be then affecting the mood or well-being of the people who we're coming in contact with? Like when I shake your hands, is there any substantial transmission when we eat together? I think I maybe told you about this study, but at least in other cultures, it's very common for people after making physical contact with another person that they smell their hand. Oh yeah, I saw something about that. Yeah. So the idea is that there is transmission of microbes and that we've actually evolved ways of detecting some of those microbial cues and that they might be important. Mm -hmm. So the other thing that you're talking about is the idea that this is true, that we have this little miasma of microbes that are inhabiting us at a very low concentration that are floating around us all the time, all the time. This is true. We know this is true. It's like that character in Charlie Brown. What was his name? Pigpen. Yes. It's he pig has pen. that little... That, so, yeah. So we so, are... Yeah. He's a visualization of the microbial miasma. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Charlie Brown, like, mm-hmm. knew it back in... When was that? That was... Yeah. So the speculation yeah. is, does that miasma, does that affect other people? I think it probably does. I mean, it'd be a bit distressing to think about what happens when the miasma is really that of sick people, right? Because we're dealing with, in the ER, where I work... There's lots of disturbed microbiomes, lots of them. And there's people mm-hmm. that have behavioral disturbances. And we're, at, we're, you know, the hospital is one of these workplaces where we're really in close proximity to people in ways that we're really not in any other mm-hmm. setting as far as I know. Even most, most industrialized workplaces like factories these days, there's very few people in them and people aren't interacting or they're, it's a, it really is truly a sterile environment. But the hospital is not. The hospital, despite the fact that we like to think of it as being sterile, is hugely non-sterile. It's about as sterile as a Starbucks. Exactly. It's pretty scary. <laughs> yeah, so we're being exposed to this, this little orbit of microbes around every person that we're interacting with. Sort of like the baristas. What's the brief? <laughs> just, you know, they're <laughs> handing the cups and taking uh-huh. the orders. But for you, it's even more, right? Because you're... Yeah. You touch people, you talk to them more extended. Now, we do wash our hands. We do wear masks when we think about it. Right. But still, mm-hmm. we're being exposed to all, all kinds of badness. Mm-hmm. Can't all be good. Right, right. Okay, so we're as we move through life, we have this microbial cloud that mm-hmm. moves along with us. And, and we don't really know what, if anything, that's doing in our social interactions. So this is really the story of the microbiome. I mean, that encapsulates it in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. Is that right? That's, that's a, maybe a mixed metaphor. <laughs> 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 but the idea that there's something that we haven't paid attention to, but it's hugely important mm-hmm. in modulating some of our yeah. uh, social interactions and other things that are important to our health and our lives. Right. Yeah, so we have lots of chemoreceptors, right? Like the they're called what? MAMPs and PAMPs, the molecular, what are they? No, you're right. Yeah. Our immune system and our bodies are built in such a way that a lot of our body systems are pay 
an inordinate amount of attention to microbial cues. They're really, we're really plugged into this microbial world, whether we're aware of it or not. And so yeah, MAPS, that's microbial associated molecular patterns. That's it. We have all kinds of receptors that, that whose job it is to pay attention to those things. We also have receptors. That's like little pieces of microbes, basically. Little pieces of microbes. Yeah. We have receptors for the things that microbes make or yeah. little, little chunks of microbes yeah. that are, we're being exposed to all the time. And of course, our bodies are full of microbes. Would you we say- have 20 trillion microbes that live in our guts. Yeah. It's a lot. So they're shedding little parts of themselves. They're metabolizing things. All those signals are being integrated by our immune system and are being taken up at some small level into your bloodstream and affecting gene expression and the functioning of your entire body. So maybe we should think of this system as the sixth sense of sorts. That's great. I like it. Could be your gut feeling. Uh-huh. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe those are maybe that's an additional one on top of it because maybe the vagus nerve is part of that. I like too. the sixth sense analogy. Yeah. You know, like the ghost analogy. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah, if yeah. you take away the human, you're left with the little the little shell of microbes, both in us and on us. <laughs> right. And then the the mamps like a are, ghost are the ways that our physical bodies communicate with the you know ethereal world of the microbiome the, or something. The undead. Oh, yeah, the undead. Let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, all right. One of the things that made me start thinking about how the microbiome is not always your friend, I mean, like we've said, it can be your friend, but it's often not, is what happens when you're about the time to die. And in fact, there is this thing called the mutiny hypothesis. I thought this was my idea back, <laughs> back in the day, and I presented this topic, but someone actually went to the trouble of writing it up, and there is truly a mutiny hypothesis. And the idea is this which is that when you get sick and when you're about to die, all of a sudden, all the little microbes in your body that have been happily living in you, ingesting nutrients that you eat and doing various things that don't hurt you and not making you sick. Their interests are aligned with yours. Yeah. All of a sudden, their interests are not aligned. And when you get sick, they can turn on you and make you sicker. So if they can sense that you're stressed, having some life-threatening problem, maybe about to die, then they start burrowing out of your guts going into your bloodstream translocating to different organs and what's remarkable is when you do die when you no longer have an immune system that can keep them in check they rapidly transmit themselves to what we think of as being sterile tissues gut microbes can be found into your heart within minutes they can be found in your brain within a short amount of time they're they're ready to rock and roll and actually start consuming eating you alive wait so there's microbes in all of us right now that are literally just waiting for us to die or seem like we're about to die and they're just gonna have a party so they can they can hasten your death they can hasten your death yeah we're sure about that well it's the mutiny hypothesis okay there's another hypothesis that's out there called the Trojan horse hypothesis. Okay, what's the Trojan horse hypothesis? Well, this is kind of the idea that, again, we have these supposedly friendly little creatures that are living in us, but in fact, they are ninja warriors ready to erupt at any time. I didn't come up with this. Those sound like they're kind of similar. They're kind of similar, but the Trojan horse hypothesis doesn't rely on you being about to die. It basically says that you have within you microbes that can turn on you at any time mm -hmm. and make you sick. Okay. So commensals that aren't making you sick can find their way into other tissues of your body, and then they can make you really sick. 
Right. And that we do know. Yeah, we know this. That's true. That's for yeah. sure. No doubt about it. What parts of this are not for sure? Well, we don't know. Well, I'll put it this way. There's a guy by the name of Stephen Schuster who presented the housefly. Actually, it was carrion fly. These are blowflies. <laughs> he looked at the microbiome of blowflies, and he argued that the fly and the microbes are in cahoots, kind of. They have a, a bit of a biological conspiracy to infect organisms and then kill them so that that will increase the number of carrion flies and, and microbes. So the question really is, are the microbes really, do they really have it in for you? And do they, do they, is it really in their best interest to, to kill you off? Mm -hmm. But we're kind of talking as if microbes are some unitary thing, but they're not, I mean, yeah. there's so many different species and some presumably have, generally more aligned interests with us. Yeah, we're going to have hundreds have hundreds or thousands less, of different different varieties yeah. of, of microbes yeah. in any given body site. Yeah, and of those microbes, some of them are going to do better when we're healthier, and some might benefit more from making us sick than others, right? Yeah. So, but the, the key thing to keep in mind is that microbes can change their strategies. Right. Some are, are obligate pathogens mm -hmm. that are going to make you sick almost no matter what. Mm -hmm. But the more we look, the more we're finding that a lot of pathogens and potential pathogens can change their state. They can go from being this little benign, not going to hurt anybody, kind of a critter, to something which is super dangerous, and lethal. They, and they do this by changing their gene expression, presumably. Yeah. So I mentioned that microbes can sense your stress state. They do this, they have, there are adrenoreceptors. There are receptors for stress hormones on a whole bunch of pathogenic microbes, and that can regulate their virulence and their uh, growth. Microbes also have receptors, getting back to the opioids, they have receptors for opioids, wow. pathogens. This is something that I was just looking into today. What do they have those for? I don't know, but they seem to mess with us. So a paper that was brought to my attention today by one of the medical students that we're teaching, he shared with me this paper, and I somehow missed this, but it turns out that microbes can adjust our sensitivity to opioids. What? Yeah, so not only can, can microbes affect pain sensation, but they can also affect how we respond to opioids. Wow. So that's kind of cool. So the reason why this is important is that opioids tend to favor the growth of gut microbes and especially pathogenic ones. So people that are heroin addicts, people that were giving lots of opioids to, people that are dependent on opioids for chronic pain, they have bad things happening in their guts. And in fact, overall, they have a higher risk of gut infections, surgical complications, and higher mortality overall. So you might imagine that microbes might benefit from having a sort of a high opioid environment, if right. that's true. But this sort of amazing paper looked at the phenomenon is called tachyphylaxis. And tachyphylaxis is where, say, drug addicts, if they want to get a certain amount of high, they have to inject more and more and more of the drug to mm -hmm. get the equivalent amount of high, because you develop a certain, a sort of dependence and a sort of tolerance, tolerance yeah. to, the, to the 
drug in question. And so here we're talking about opioids. So of course that causes people to overdose when say a drug addict gets incarcerated, goes to jail for a few days, gets out, they actually recover some of the tolerance goes away. They inject the same amount of drug that made them high before and now it kills them. Mm. But the underlying problem there was that is this ramping up of, of dose. We see this in, in people who are addicts and we see it in patients in the hospital. Tachyphylaxis, this whole phenomenon of tolerance, it doesn't happen if you're germ-free. What? Yeah. If you're a mouse and you're made germ-free. Right. Germ-free mice don't undergo this, this phenomenon. So microbes may be playing a huge role in addiction that we just haven't yet figured out. Well, there's that. And microbes might just be playing us, period. You know, <laughs> they, might be, they might be messing with our pain systems, our opioid systems. Because, we, of course, we produce endogenous opioids. That's why we have receptors for opioids. We didn't evolve, you know, these receptors in anticipation of there being heroin or refining poppies for right. these purposes. We have these things in our bodies. But the microbes are paying attention, too. And they're interfering in some ways with some of these systems. Yeah. Is, wow. Now, is that a absolute? No, kind of like the microbes affecting our eating behaviors. It's it's a little speculative, but yeah, wow, they're doing some cool stuff. Yeah, well, you have to ask, you know, if we we know and we do know that microbes have the ability to interact with all of these systems in our bodies, mm -hmm. then if you're taking an evolutionary perspective, you have to ask, you know, well, is it just like noise, is it a byproduct or is it an adaptation, right? And so... Yeah. So we're going to be careful about these things. So if it's noise, right, then it's yeah. just like, oh, it's totally random. It doesn't have any function for either us as humans or the microbes. Um, if on the other extreme, if it's an adaptation, then it's like both or, or one of the parties evolved to do it because it benefited them. In this case, presumably the microbes evolved to mess with us but we also evolved to have these systems to be functional so yeah. so i'm weird yeah. and i actually think about these things a lot yeah and i really wonder about it so yeah. any given interaction there's a bunch of different possibilities just like you said right. it can benefit us and not benefit the microbe it can benefit both partners which is seems to be the default position of many theorists in the field right now or it could be it could benefit neither party and mm -hmm. just be sort of a neutral thing we don't mm -hmm. know exactly what's going on here, mm -hmm. but it's awesome. Yeah, well, it's and, kind of amazing. And I mean, sometimes, right? Can't believe this stuff. <laughs> like, if you have a situation where two parties can manipulate each other, yeah. then it can escalate into a situation that's really bad for both, even though, like, mm -hmm. it wouldn't have to be that way, right? Like, anytime you have an arms race, both parties can end up investing a huge amount in the arms race when they would have just both been better off not engaging with each other yeah. in the first place like my kids when they start to like fight with each other and it's just come on your like, kids are, little, are angels oh yeah totally. they would never do that they'd never do that don't believe it <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah i wonder about that issue of like how much um of disease is actually a sort of escalation between parties yeah. so you know the microbes are say um, you know, producing factors, whether they're virulence factors that make us not feel as good, or if they're, you know, factors that are trying to manipulate our physiology in other ways. 
And then maybe our immune system has some counter response to that. And then perhaps the microbes have another counter response and then we have a counter response. And, and you know, maybe that's one of the sort of feedback loops that yeah. contributes to disease. I think you're right. Those things have to play out, at least to some degree. I think we would be naive to think that they don't work in that way sometimes. But the great thing is, if you didn't think about stuff like this in evolutionary perspective, you wouldn't look for these kinds of things. And yeah. you have to be, you have to think about it to look for it. And the more we look in the microbiome, the more we find some of these unexpected, crazy sorts of phenomena. Yeah. Yeah. So we've kind of been sort of taking this angle of like, you know, how are microbes manipulating us, right? Are microbes zombifying us? Mm -hmm. But let's turn on its head for a minute. Are, are we zombifying the microbes inside of us? I think people have thought about domesticating microbes. What's the relationship between zombification and domestication? Well, when you look at a domesticated animal, let's imagine a cow, for instance, or even a dog or a cat, and you compare it to its wild cousin, what's the major feature that's the, that's missing? Aggression, they're, right? Now they're missing their brains. And yeah. <laughs> brains. <laughs> yeah, their brains. Brains. They have much smaller brains. We ate their brains. Domesticated animals don't need brains. I mean. Brains are gone. They're, Not totally gone. I, I mean, we yeah. figuratively ate their brains. Yeah. Did you know disappear. that human cranial capacity has also diminished in the last 10,000 years? I just learned that recently. which And I was really surprised by that. Yeah. But people have said that we humans are self-domesticated because of agriculture and other reasons. So we don't need to have as much, you know, stuff going on upstairs. Which is... We're becoming dumber over time. Which is... So not what most people think. Right. I was surprised by this, but then I looked it up. And it's true. <laughs> it's true. Hmm. But well, yeah, so if domestication involves sort of the loss of one's brain, then you could imagine that in some ways we're domesticating our microbes too. Maybe. But if we, well, let's just talk about the relationship between domestication and zombification for a minute, because if domestication involves brains getting smaller, then presumably that involves being more pliable, being more malleable, being more manipulable. I mean, Absolutely. You know, some other thing, in the case of us and say our pets, we're taking care of their dietary needs and we're making sure they have enough you know, resources to get by with. And so they don't need to have a big brain. And that, that absolutely requires them to be somewhat malleable and pliable, 100%. So on one hand, domestication and taking care of the needs of something seems like a really good thing. It's a positive thing. It's helpful. It's kind. It's giving. But right. on the other hand, it's creating an entity that is more dependent and hijackable for your own ends that's scary but yeah i think that's the, that's the way to look at it hmm. um before we go too much off in this direction which i'm enjoying but i want to make sure we have a chance to talk about the heat stroke idea that you 
talked about at the zombie apocalypse medicine meeting. Do you want to talk about that briefly or not so much? I want to talk about it for four hours. I'm just kidding. <laughs> we Bonus can, we episode. can see if we can do it briefly. Because, <laughs> I mean, it relates a lot to yeah. the idea you're talking about earlier of like, you know, when do your microbes mutiny? Yeah. So let's get into that for a second. Okay. Before I do, though, I want to talk about the one example of a microbe that does seem to influence its host's eating behavior in a way that benefits the microbe. Ooh. And that's Salmonella enterica. So it causes dysentery in people and a, something like dysentery in, in mice. And typically when we get sick with a GI infection, we lose our appetite and we exhibit sickness behavior, right? We, you know, want to lie in bed. We're going to call in sick. We're going to just not do the normal things that we do. We're not going to be super social. And mm -hmm. that is thought to be adaptive and beneficial and good for us. Well, Salmonella enterica, at least in mice, turns off sickness behavior. So here you have this little diarrheal mouse, and it's running around, interacting normally with with its uh, with other mice, and it's eating the normal amount. So they they don't mm -hmm. lose their appetite; they continue to eat. So that makes more Salmonella enterica, and it wow. gives it more opportunities to transmit itself. So. This is the best animal example of that hijacking of, of brain and behavior that we see in a way which really seems like it benefits the microbe, perhaps at the expense of the host, although that's debatable. That's interesting. Is there any other, are there any other examples of like when hosts get infected? There's rabies. So and I think that the zombie idea has to take in large measure inspiration from the example of rabies mm. right rabies victims are nuts they want to bite you they're frothing at the mouth and they lose their mind it, it is literally an encephalopathy yeah right their their brains are yeah. becoming liquefied with virus are they really maybe not that could be a some artistic license <laughs> that's permitted <laughs> <laughs> but their brains are super inflamed right. and they have this massive inflammatory yeah, response yeah. So. and the behaviors just so happen to benefit the virus the hydrophobia, which has been thought is actually an inability to swallow. So there's a buildup of saliva in the mouth and animals lose that coordinated swallow reflex hmm. and the aggression and the animals change their circadian pattern. So a nocturnal raccoon will then become diurnal and be wandering right in the middle of the street and people will sit, go down to pet it and off, off they go to the races with rabies. Yeah. Crazy so, stuff. Okay. But heat stroke. All right. Heat stroke. Yeah. <laughs> heat stroke is kind of like the mutiny idea. That heat in heat stroke, where we're exposed to high temperatures, the lining of the gut becomes unable to contain microbes in their products. And so bits of microbes then leak into the bloodstream, cause massive amounts of inflammation. And heat stroke looks just like overwhelming sepsis. So heat stroke is an example where like the Trojan horse or like the mutiny idea, our, our commensal microbes turn on us and they elicit this massive inflammation that is deadly, that kills a lot of people, has a huge mortality, and that's why heat waves are so deadly. Hmm. So the physiological mechanisms underlying heat stroke are basically the same as the physiological mechanisms that underlie sepsis? They look very similar. And in fact, even clinically, they look similar. The temperature is elevated, blood pressure can be low, the heart rate is super fast, and there's a lot of similarities. Um, 
if we look even biochemically, we'll find an elevated lactate in sepsis. We'll find activation of the coagulation cascade, massive activation of inflammatory markers in inflammatory cells. It looks just like sepsis. <laughs> so some, again, people have argued that the microbiome is there to buffer us from environmental extremes. It complements our genomes and it provides us these evolutionary advantages, these fitness advantages that allow us to cope with differences in environment so we can exploit these different environments. So here's a different environment. You just crank up the heat a little bit and instead of buffering us or making us better able to deal with it, the microbiome turns on us and actually makes us sick. Uh, I'm gonna, so I'm fascinated by this. I'm going to play devil's advocate for a, a moment here just because, you know, I'm... I'm always the optimist about there being some That's true. cooperation somewhere. Yeah. So there is cooperation. Yeah. So could it be that some species of microbes, if you have them in your system, you're going to be more protected than if you have other species of microbes? So if you mm -hmm. have, you know, species that are less likely to, um, you know, be ready to jump ship and, and mutiny because they, you know, are either better kept under control by our bodies or intrinsically have more aligned interests with us or something. So at the symposium that you held at Saguaro Lake, mm -hmm. somebody said you can't have cooperation without conflict. It's really a yin and a yang. Do you think that's true? I think that conflict is one of the big forces that can encourage cooperation, right? Because if yeah. there's like some outside conflict, then it's easier for people to team up. But I think you can also just have sort of inherently harsh environments mm -hmm. and get cooperation without necessarily having to have direct conflict. So that can happen sometimes. But my view on this is that of course, I don't think that everything is conflict. I don't think that everything is manipulation. I don't think that we're being hijacked all the time. And in fact, we do have some pretty good examples of things that look like mutualism in our guts. But it makes sense to me that there's always this potential for conflict, competition, and harm from the microbiome. So the immune system, the job of our immune system really is to encourage alliances between our bodies and the potentially protective ones. And of course, there's going to be a great gradation of harmful to less harmful ones or microbes that have our fitness interests more in alignment with theirs. So our immune system tries to encourage the growth of those microbes. They may, in fact, produce increasing cooperation in the way which is the, the inverse of what you were talking about earlier with increasing conflict that happens. Mm -hmm. But really, it's, it's two sides of the same coin. Yeah, I mean, presumably our bodies can exert selective pressure on the populations of microbes within us, right? Depending on what yeah, know, that, factors our body is producing, depending on whether we're feeding sugars to the microbes in the lining of the gut or not. There's a lot of things our bodies can do. Yeah, so evolutionary theorists uh, have proposed that you can't really get widespread cooperation in the microbiome without selection. And the selection that's, that's happening is being happening because of the immune system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but if you know our bodies are constantly doing that selection, then that's going to be influencing, you know, who the players are that are in the gut, right? Yeah. And and also you mentioned earlier how 
some microbes have really conditional behavior, right? They'll be beneficial sometimes and you know, virulent other times, depending on their gene expression. And our bodies can potentially reinforce the yeah. So when you have when we, when we when we subject this this complicated system to something like a game theoretical approach, we can acknowledge that both sides have conditional strategies. You can upregulate your immune system or downregulate the immune system depending on conditions, and the microbes can do the very same thing. And it's going to be in both parties' interests sometimes to kind of lay off each other, right? Downregulate virulence and immunity. Yeah. Otherwise, um, you can potentially get stuck in this ever escalating situation where I'm again speculating here that that kind of escalation could be responsible for a lot of the... Well, we should look for it. And yeah. We should look for both those things. Yeah. And maybe sepsis and heat stroke, like we talked about, are examples of sort of a, a, a forward hmm. positive feedback, feedback loop. loop. Interesting. In which things have gotten out of control. Yeah. Well, that actually leads us to the question that we always have to ask in this podcast which is... Are you a zombie? Well, that too. I do <laughs> want to know. Um, but our the question is, what is the zombie apocalypse of microbes manipulating human behavior? Like, what's the extreme, you know, if you, if you sort of take what we know about how microbes affect behavior and, and then you extrapolate that into a zombie apocalypse what does that apocalypse look like i think it's full of poo <laughs> from the micros perspective the human is just a way to make more microbes this is the shittiest apocalypse <laughs> that's right so the apocalypse is just mountains of poo everywhere the poo apocalypse <laughs> right yeah i guess or what if it's... Actually and actually, we humans are doing a pretty good job of that on our own. A lot of shit. Well, yeah. We're generating and a lot Contaminating of shit. Our, our environment. And yeah. Yeah. Well, how about if there's some microbes that are just really good at transmitting without killing us? And they're manipulating us to make us extra social or maybe want to help people or become a physician or something like that. There are some physician sociopaths. <laughs> right? It's not all good. I guess I'm, I'm going to bring it back the other way, all right. which is thinking realistically about what can we do to protect ourselves from the, from the microbiome. So whether or not we're being zombified, whether or not we're being hijacked, and whether or not we're you know, being manipulated, we do know for sure the microbiome has the capacity to one, make us feel bad and to make us sick and to kill us. All of those are very, very real things. They're not up for debate. That stuff is, is known. So how do we protect ourselves from this? And given that microbes do have these conditional strategies, we wanna put all the incentives in the way, away from them being virulent and manipulative and harmful to us. And, right. and this kind of gets back to the domestication idea. We want to corral those microbes and make them do our bidding. 
We want to, and we want to keep them in place. We don't want a microbe with agency. If you think about it, E. coli with its little flagellum is when they become motile and they start moving around, that's when they're dangerous. They, that's when they've escaped the control of the immune system. That's when they find their way into your body tissues and, and make you sick. It's your job to say, you know what? That's a bad idea. Don't you just stay put, stay where you're at. Don't grow a flagellum. Don't activate those virulence factors. We're going to give you a couple things to pay you off and, and keep you cool, but just don't do it. So that's really, really our agenda. Okay. So our immune system does this, but we can have dietary choices, lifestyle things that we can do and a bunch of stuff, even maybe some social interactions that we can do that to try to keep our microbiomes as healthy for us as possible as domesticated as possible. So you're saying zombify your microbiome so it doesn't zombify you. Exactly. You got it. <laughs> Sounds like a winner to me. All right. Well, Joe, thank you so much for joining us today. It was truly amazing having you. And we have a lot to think about. And thank you, Athena. And if the whole world says that we're crazy, we don't need more All right, it is time for my shout outs. Thank you to the Department of Psychology at ASU and to ASU in general for helping to support Zombified. Especially thanks to the strategic initiative from the President's Office, the Interdisciplinary Cooperation Initiative that helps to support this podcast and the Lincoln Center for Applied Ethics. Also, thanks to my lab, the Ectipus Lab, for all of your help and support. And of course, the Zombie Apocalypse Medicine Alliance. We are on Twitter and Instagram, Zombified Pod, on Patreon as Zombified, and our website is zombified.org. If you love Zombified, think about supporting us. We're an educational podcast. We have no ads. If you can even contribute just $1 a month to us, that will help us make more awesome episodes. And finally, thanks to all of the brains that help make this podcast. Thanks to Tal Ram, who does our amazing sound, to Neil Smith, who does all of our illustrations. And thank you also to Lemmy, who is the artist behind our theme song, Psychological. If you're interested in listening to that, you can hear the whole thing on our website or on Spotify or wherever you listen to music. 
And finally, I'm going to share some of my brains like I do at the end of any episode. I give some sort of a story or some connection to my work or a wild speculation of some sort. So I'm going to offer today maybe the craziest thing that I have ever done in a semi-academic situation, which is... I wrote a one-act play with um, my husband and colleague, Carlo Maley, to explore a hypothesis. Um, So we wrote the play, and then we actually also performed it at the Zombie Apocalypse Medicine Meeting. The name of the play is The First Church of the Microbiome. And we wrote this play to explore the hypothesis that microbes might be responsible for religiosity and spirituality. So the idea is that we know that microbes can influence our emotions, our uh, physiological states, and there is sort of this possibility that they may potentially, possibly, be responsible for things that we think of as spiritual feelings or religious feelings. Um, So in this sort of hypothesis framework slash play, the spirit is the microbiome. And, you know, it enters through our breath, like through the air that we breathe and um, interacts with our nervous systems and physiology that way. And so one of the fun things about this wild hypothesis is that if it is true, then You can actually think of all of us as um, sort of spiritual slash microbial kin by virtue of sharing microbes. And if we, you know, come together and, um, you know, sing together or dance together or eat together, that we actually can become more genetically related in terms of the microbes that we have. So, yes, lots of interesting ideas kind of swarm around this notion and they're all wild and speculative and that's why we wrote a play instead of writing a paper and trying to get it published. So one last bit, which is I realized that if this is the case that we can kind of, you know, become more microbially related through doing things together like this, then maybe maybe that makes it easier for us to share our brains if we're more microbially related. Well, with all that, I want to thank you for listening to Zombified, your source for fresh brains. It's crazy, but it seems so logical. I can't deny that there is something supernatural with you. Me at the way